0: Welcome to Health to Be Determined, a podcast about the social determinants of health. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Gabriel Kaplan, Board President of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Dr. Kaplan interviews Dr. Elizabeth Cuervo Tilson, State Health Director and the Chief Medical Officer for the Department of Health and Human Services. Together, they discuss North Carolina's integration of population health and Medicaid. Hello and welcome to Socially Determined, I'm Gabriel Kaplan. Today I'm talking with Dr. Elizabeth Quervo Tilson, she is the State Health Director and Chief Medical Officer for the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. In this role, she promotes public health and prevention activities as well as providing guidance and oversight on a variety of cross-departmental issues. She's also a practicing physician and delivers primary care at the Wake County Human Services Child Health Clinic. She has a bachelor's degree in biology from Dartmouth College, a medical degree from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and a master's degree in public health from the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. She completed residencies at Johns Hopkins Hospital and the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill and is board certified in general preventive medicine and pediatric medicine as well. So uh, Dr. Tilson, thank you so much for joining us. We've arranged this conversation because North Carolina has recently received permission to change the ways that it pays for certain services and for the kinds of services that North Carolina Medicaid can pay for. Can you tell our listeners briefly about what North Carolina is doing in its integration of population health and Medicaid?
1: Thank you, and thank you for um, inviting me to join you on this podcast. I think what we're doing in North Carolina, I'm I'm really, really excited about doing. It's really thinking that concept of connecting public health and clinical medicine, um, really thinking about integrating population health in, into Medicaid and really thinking about holistic health. We use the terms that we want to be buying health, not just health care, but buying health. And in service of that, all of our North Carolinians have the the opportunity for health. And so we can, we'll can. we talk more about some of the flexibility that we got with our Medicaid dollars, but it really is a department-wide agenda and strategy to think about how we're integrating health and health care across all of our agendas. And so, within Medicaid specifically, we, as we move into Medicaid managed care, we're thinking a lot of things uh, that we can do with our regular plan, uh, our plans across our state. But then we also did get this flexibility with um, in our move to our 1115 waiver to really think about how do we use Medicaid dollars to pay for health services, so things related to food and housing and transportation, um, and we can talk more deeply in that.
0: Great. So food, transportation, all of these things are Mm -hmm. um, going to be potentially supported by the Medicaid program. For our audience uh, members who may not be expert on Medicaid rules and processes, can you tell us what an 1115 waiver is, what a SPA is, and uh, the kinds of mechanisms that North Carolina used to? try to get CMS permission to leverage Medicaid dollars to address important community-based aspects of health?
1: Yeah, happy to. So there are some things within a Medicaid program, there are some things that the state has autonomy or authority um, and decision-making authority over. Um, But there are some things that you need, since Medicaid is a joint federal state program, there are some things that you need permission from the federal government um, and flexibility from the federal government to do. And so as we are moving into Medicaid managed care, we are doing it with what's called an 1115 waiver demonstration. The beauty of the 1115 waiver demonstration is that that gives us the flexibility to do a demonstration, to do a pilot, to really learn how to innovate within our Medicaid program. So it's the fact that we use the 1115 waiver demonstration that gave us the flexibility to use Medicaid dollars for non-medical services um, and in the spirit of really learning and evaluating and piloting and understanding what's the impact of using Medicaid dollars in this more flexible way.
0: Can you tell our audience some some examples of the non-medical services that uh, Medicaid is going to be paying for through this pilot?
1: Yeah, so we have four priority domains that we have services underneath, and there'll be 29 different services that we are proposing to use Medicaid dollars for. So we are looking within food, we're looking within housing stability support as well as housing quality, we're looking within transportation, and then we're also looking within um, interpersonal violence and safety, so thinking about domestic violence, also thinking about upstream, thinking about adverse childhood experiences and resiliency, so looking at Evidence-based parent support practices and evidence-based home visiting. So those are our four domains. We have a total of twenty-nine service definitions within those four domains.
0: And all of this will be covered under the Medicaid managed care program. Uh, so it's outside of the sort of fee-for-service. You're not opening codes, or are you opening sort of ICD-10 billing codes for that?
1: No. This is the part of doing this as a demonstration project that we're going to be learning about these services, and then when we learn within these regional pilots, and so it's not going to be statewide in the beginning and we can get to that it'll be within these regional pilots these learning pilots what we learn through these pilots then we'll think about what do we want to put into our statewide Medicaid plans and then do we need CPT and ICD-10 and do we need to open codes how do we integrate what we've learned into our overall covered health benefits I'm um, at the end of, of the learning of the pilots
0: I understand that uh, NDPP is going to be a part of uh, this program the National Diabetes mm-hmm. Prevention Program which is a, a real priority of chronic parental- disease uh, prevention programs across the country, which is to achieve partnerships with Medicaid and public health uh, so that it becomes a covered benefit for our Medicaid population. Uh, Can you tell us why the NDPP is part of this program rather than being defined as a covered health benefit?
1: Yeah, and we talked a lot about thinking what do we put in knowing that we were right in the middle of moving from fee-for-service into Medicaid managed care, and so do we think about Pulling it into our fee-for-service, or do we look ahead and think about how do we integrate this into what the future of Medicaid is going to be in North Carolina? Um, and so, for right now, we have as we move into into Medicaid managed care, the DPPs can be covered by our plans as an in lieu of service or an optional service. So they definitely can cover it. But we definitely wanted to put it into our pilot service definition so we could test it out in our Medicaid managed care environment, and then therefore really have it be picked up in our statewide. Medicaid managed care environment as we're moving forward. So we were really just forward thinking of how do we integrate this into what the future of Medicaid is going to be in North Carolina.
0: So you said housing and transportation are mm-hmm. part of these domains. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you give us an example from each? Uh, how, how would it work when a patient is in a medical setting talking to their doctor and it becomes clear to the physician or the nurse practitioner that this individual is having some challenges with housing and transportation?
1: Yeah, so there's a some core infrastructure pieces that we wanted to be sure were in place onto which we could add the pilot activities. Because with the pilot activities, we're thinking about how do we define health, right? So those are the service definitions. How do we deliver health? So we have to, to create a whole different system of, of health delivery, and then how do, we, how do we pay for health? So we knew we had to do a lot of work within the pilots, but we also wanted to be sure that we were creating the infrastructure across the state and across our plans so that these targeted pilots would have a better chance of success. So what we're doing statewide is that we have a standardized set of Of screening questions that actually ask about food and housing and transportation and interpersonal violence so that we're identifying these these social needs. Second, we are rolling out a statewide coordinated network and digital platform that we can identify resources and actually electronically refer people to resources and have a closed loop uh, functionality so we know what actually happened. And that'll be rolling out across the whole state and, and being utilized by the pilots. And then the third piece is that we wanted to be sure whatever we doing in the in the pilots was part of our managed care environment, so that would have life beyond the pilots. So what would probably happen is either at a provider's office, if they're screening at the provider's office, they identify somebody has needs, or the patient is already within managed care and working with a care manager, and that care manager has identified that those needs. Then then they can be referred to a resource or community-based organization that's, that's delivering those needs, and then we would have that feedback loop to know it, um, exactly what happens. And then if you're within the pilot, pilots, then we can also trigger payments to those human service organizations to actually pay for the services that are delivered. So we've been trying to be very intentional about the additional pilot pieces are working in this environment that we're setting for everybody across the state.
0: So an individual, theoretically, could indicate that they're housing challenged at that time and the Mm -hmm. provider could work with a human service agency through this referral mechanism that you're building Mm -hmm. and then end up in housing, supportive housing, and Medicaid would pick up the cost for the first month?
1: So within, um, yeah, so we can talk a little bit about some of the proposed service definitions. We still have to get final approval from CMS, but what we sent to them for... um, for approval are things like um, right so tenancy support so um, that's going to be a really important piece of permanent supportive housing and, and tenancy support so if we get in, you into housing then we really want to be sure to wrap around that support so that you stay in housing um, we also have a proposed service definition of paying right for first month's rent and security deposit we also have the flexibility to use that if someone post admission or post discharge we can pay up to six months of, of rent to keep somebody in stable housing six months after discharge. We also have part of our service definition is housing quality. So let's say you have a child with poorly controlled asthma and you know that there are those housing quality, there's mold or, or dirty carpet, that we can uh, use Medicaid dollars to make those ho- housing quality improvements.
0: Great. And then it works similarly for transportation and um, and counseling pre- perhaps around domestic violence and similar challenges.
1: Correct. Right. And then within Correct. our food domain, it is some of that, that the education around food so a Diabetes Prevention Program, really understanding that that healthy food as well as coupled with a healthy food box um, or a medically tailored food box if you need that. So it's actually food coupled with that education um, and and counseling and understanding of of healthy diet as well.
0: Great. So is the plan then to use these regional pilots in a kind of control treat evaluation model to demonstrate that allowing CMS and Medicaid and the state to pay for these services actually leads to better health outcomes and lower overall Medicaid health expenditures uh, in the long
1: term? Yes, absolutely. We really see this as, yes, this is a great opportunity to get services to people that they needed. But the bigger piece, the really important piece is what are we learning from this? Because I think for a long time we've said food is important, housing is important, but to have those metrics, to have that evaluation, to have that ROI, that is going to be incredibly important for us to really think about scaling this at the state or nationally. So we this is we see this as predominantly a learning and evaluation um, activity. So we have a really robust evaluation plan. We're doing that in partnership with one of our academic universities, um, and we will have rapid cycle assessment. So we can look you know, every three months, every six months, every year, what, look, what seems to be working. And then we have a really robust summative evaluation as well. So once we have enough people being delivered different services, that at the end we can look at some of those sub-target analysis and say, a person with this set of risk factors and then this set of interventions really seem to have led to improved health status um, and then decreased cost and utilization. So the learning and the evaluation and the data piece of this incredibly important um, on top of the service definition, the delivery system, um, and the payment piece.
0: It's really potentially revolutionary when you think about it. I I could see a whole host of states staring at North Carolina wanting to see what the outcomes are. And then private plans as well, plans that sell to individuals on the exchange or employers who are working with a diverse population that might have a variety of challenges, particularly employers who are on the lower end of the pay scale. All would have an interest, I think, in seeing what the outcomes of this are. So it really could be revolutionary at a national level. Can you tell us how this effort came about, uh, what its origins were and the steps that you took to line up support in your state for this?
1: Yeah, I can, but let me go back to that prior comment. Absolutely. We see this as an incredible unprecedented opportunity to move from what we've all been talking about to what does it actually mean and thinking about aligning across payers we've talked a lot about some of like our medicare ma plans they have some flexibility to choose some of their their covered services thinking about our commercial plans i'm thinking about at that at that community based organization level right so if i'm a cbo delivering food or transportation, it's great if I have Medicaid paying for some of my services, but then I also get Medicare paying and the commercial paying. Now you have a viable financial solution at that community-based organization level to be actually delivering services. So we've been talking a lot about scaling across payers and, a, and really multi-payer alignment of this. So I don't see this as just a Medicaid-only piece. I see this it'll really work if we scale across payers. And we know there's food insecurity in our commercial populations. There's incredible food security in our Medicare population. This is not a Medicaid-only issue. This is a population-wide issue. And so I absolutely agree with that prior comment. Our goal and our hope is not only to figure out what we do within North Carolina Medicaid statewide, but how do we think about North Carolina across all our payers, and then how do we really think about changing national policy and and even thinking at CMS, what then is a covered benefit across all all Medicaid plans or other payer plans? So we see that. We feel that pressure. (laughs) States call us all the time, and we're taking it very, very, very serious because I do think this is an unprecedented opportunity to do what we've been all saying what needs to be done and learn from it. So I agree. So the second piece was how did we get there, right? That's what yeah. So our secretary came to us about two and a half years ago and I, I followed shortly thereafter and she really believes that we should be in the business of buying health. We absolutely should be in a business buying health, not health care. Um, and so really set that leadership, set that tone, and said, how do we set this department up for buying health? And so it really was in her leadership, and then the, really a buy-in from the department is this is what we want to do that set us on this path and really thinking about it intentionally across all of our agendas. And then we had submitted, uh, in a prior administration, had submitted a proposal for 1115 waiver to CMS, and we pulled that back. Um, and we said... What do we really want to do with our Medicaid dollars and Medicaid plans and we reworked that 1115 waiver and then had about a year long negotiation with CMS to really think about the flexibility and again using Medicaid dollars to buying health. So it was uh, really leadership from our secretary so we have top buy-in, buy-in across the department and then this collaborative approach with CMS and I will say it was so when we were at the end of the negotiation, CMS is really excited about this. And Seema Verma, who is the administrator of CMS, she was the first one to um, send out social media and blogs and work with health affairs. CMS was really excited about this as well. And so that's how we started and thinking about pair alignment and thinking about integrating population health in Medicaid across every every single lever we could pull in Medicaid. We've been pulling and then the pilots is an additional huge lever that we're pulling.
0: Great. And what's fascinating about this, uh, particularly in this uh, point in time politically for this country is you're getting support from both the top and you know the bottom in the sense that you've got federal support for this work and uh, enthusiasm at the state level and in both of those instances we have mixed form you know government with both parties in control sharing control uh, both in North Carolina at the national level and it really sounds like there's bipartisan support for this effort for those of our listeners who might be concerned that this could become sort of politically challenging in their environment it sounds like there's really support from both sides of the aisle at both the federal and state level here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think health care can be very politically divisive. But health, we find, is not. And when you ask people, and and we've done done a a fair amount of work really understanding what people's thoughts about health is, um, and some really, really cool polling with black Democratic women, white Republican women, and ask the question that, if I give you $100, how would you spend it to achieve health? Across the board, there is concern. Consistent understanding of how we would spend that dollars. About 20% would be on health care, about 80% on everything else. And what people can articulate across the political spectrum and what they understand with their common sense is what you need for health is healthy food, safe place to live. And a good paying job people universally understand that and so we use language like social determinants of health and non-medical drivers of health fundamentally people get it and so what we're i think one of the beauties of of innovating in north carolina is just as you articulated we're we're politically purple right and so if yeah. we can not have this be a it really shouldn't be political this is common sense people get it. So we can do this in North Carolina and with the support of CMS, then it can be done anywhere. It's not, this isn't politics, this is basic fundamental health. And so it's common sense and then we can back it up with the evaluation, with the metrics, with the pragmatism, with the ROI, with the business case then you have it. That's really what we're trying to do. And I, and I think the huge advantage of doing this in North Carolina is that then it can be done anywhere.
0: What were the biggest roadblocks that you faced and what was instrumental in overcoming them?
1: I don't know that they were really roadblocks. There had to be a little bit of culture shift, a little bit of a language shift, people understanding what we're talking about. For example, some of uh, when we we're in negotiations with CMS, some of the people we were talking uh, initially with We're saying, well, for people to be eligible for the pilots, they just can't be nursing home eligible. And we said, oh, we're talking a very different sphere of health. So then uh, talking to different people at CMS who who kind of understood the culture change, understood what we were really talking about. So it was really uh, understanding the language and the culture. So not so much a roadblock, but people really shifting and understanding our holistic view of health. And I would say not so much a roadblock, but we are just really we're aware of and humbled by the amount of transformation, system transformation that we're going to have to do to really make this work. And so we don't, an incredible appreciation for our housing system um, and not breaking that and our domestic violence system and not breaking that and not wanting to over-medicalize our social services and to also recognize that healthcare often does not understand the complexity of social services. So really listening, we there are a huge amount of focus groups and stakeholder input, subject matter expertise help us understand, if we're going def- to define a, a housing service definition, help us define that because healthcare people are not experts in, in housing or domestic violence. So we really recognize that gap, a huge amount of, of input um, from those from those subject matter experts. but then it's just a recognition as these pilots are deploying, there's going to be a huge amount of technical um, assistance about capacity building, of building a whole new infrastructure of delivering health that hasn't been there before. And so we're very mindful of that and our, that the whole first year of these pilots will be capacity building. And we have capacity building dollars um, because we recognize this isn't this won't be an easy, easy switch. This isn't just someone gets a food box and I pay them money. This is really transforming our system of health and connecting sectors that haven't been connected um, before, so we're very mindful of that um, and really trying to um, be as, as intentional and planful of that.
0: You know, I've talked publicly about the choices that our society makes between making spending decisions on social services and making spending decisions on healthcare, and I've mm-hmm. pointed out that when when you combine our spending on social services and healthcare and compare our overall spending to spending in other Western European style democracies, you essentially see that we're right in the middle of the pack, that we're not sort of incredibly thrifty in that regard. And it's because of how much we spend on healthcare. Is your expectation that by pushing spending into some of these social services, well, obviously long term, the idea is it's going to result in lower overall spend in healthcare. In the near term, is it likely to increase your healthcare spending or do you think it will, is the expectation and hope that it's going to balance out pretty quickly in terms of paying for itself and not really resulting in radically increased spending on the part of for uh, social services.
1: Yeah, and we're really thinking about this as a balanced portfolio, because overall we want this to um, at least be budget neutral with improved health outcomes or cost savings. But I think we want to be sure of not getting into that trap of only doing the short-term cost savings, because we know investment upstream is going to help us with that more sustainable cost savings. And so we're looking at this as a, as a balanced portfolio, and we think about where we're going to see that cost reduction. We're mindful of that we're looking for those cost reductions in those domains, we expect there to be cost reduction. And so what I mean by that is within our portfolio, as I mentioned, so there has been study after study after study that if you have an adult with a tremendous physical health complexity, behavioral health complexity, multiple hospitalizations, multiple ED use, and um, housing instability, we get that person stably housed. We're going to decrease their hospitalizations. We're going to decrease their ED. We're going to decrease their cost utilization within a year. We're going to get a pretty good ROI on that that has been shown study after study after study, that is awesome, however. What I want to do is from, I think, a population health perspective, I want to make sure that I'm not getting people on the trajectory of being homeless or housing in, in, um, unstable in the first place, right? And so we go upstream and we think about the level of trauma and adverse childhood experiences and how that then greatly increases your risk of being housing in, unstable down the road. So I want to make sure that we're also investing some of our dollars in upstream and thinking about, as again, the um, evidence-based parenting programs and home visiting programs and, and resiliency and. Talk- stress. But I know I'm not going to get an ROI on that in, in the next year and that's okay. Um, but we'll have a balanced portfolio so we'll have enough interventions. So we'll get that shorter term ROI as well as investing upstream so that we'll have um, that longer term ROI. So we're really trying to think about it in a very pragmatic way that we're not only being, um, again, getting some, some good cost savings. But not continuing to only fund downstream, but also make sure that we're intentionally funding upstream as well. So it's kind of a long, the, we have that long view game as well. And I think you're right, there's an imbalance between healthcare spending and social service spending. So if we start shifting that ratio, that's going to get us to much more sustainable cost savings and uh, I should say, improved health and cost savings.
0: I just really love that balance between the short-term gains and benefits and then the long-term need needed investments, particularly upstream with uh, younger kids and families, uh, and knowing that um, if we don't sort of provide them with a nurturing uh, set of resources on the front end. Uh, we'll end up paying for that down the road in 5, 10, 15, 20 years time. So thank you so much for the time you gave with us today and for really your leadership and the state's leadership in this area. It's a really exciting demonstration project. Uh, I think everyone around the country is going to be watching this with tremendous interest and um, I think the hopes of a lot of people in this field who care passionately about upstream factors and the root causes of poor health are really cheering for you.
1: Well, thank you. I really uh, appreciate you inviting me to to join you on this. It's been really fun.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Health to Be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.